everyone. You're very welcome to another edition of the Shared Ireland podcast. Today, we will be having a conversation with Kevin Marr. Kevin is a former special advisor to Sean Woodward, the Labour Secretary of State for Northern Ireland up to 2010. Since then, Kevin has authored two books, A United Ireland, Why Unification is Inevitable and How It Will Come About, as well as his new book, What a Bloody Awful Country, Northern Ireland's Century of Division. Kevin, you're very welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast. Thanks a lot, Kieran. So I suppose just to start off, uh, can you tell me what it was that drew you to politics? So is this something that you were very interested in from an early age? And how did that lead up to your time as a special advisor to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland? Yes, I've always been political. Um, I I come from quite a political family. Um, um, Very interested in in Irish history, British history, where we've come from, um, Labour history. Um, I joined the Labour Party when I was, oh, 16, 17. Um, I've been an activist in it pretty much ever since. So I've come up to my nearly 29 years as a member of the British Labour Party. Um, so, so, so yes, I've, I've always been political. I, I've worked and studied, I studied politics at university. Um, I've always been very political. Um, I've always been um, working in politics in one guise or another for the past 25 years. Um, I've worked as a political lobbyist for quite a while. I've worked in corporate communications. Um, I've worked um, for the Labour Party. I was a press officer for the for the, for the Labour Party for a while, um, up to and after the 2001 British general election. Um, I've also, as you, as you mentioned, um, been a special advisor at the, at the Northern Ireland office when that opportunity came up. So, so that was um, that was that was of, of immense interest to me at that time, particularly um, given I think the, the, the mood in, in Westminster very much. And you can imagine why um, was that Northern Ireland was a, a bit of a done deal after the Good Friday Agreement, and attention had, 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 had waned really in terms of. Um, People generally assuming, look, that was a, that was a really good day's work. That was something that went really well. Um, it's a lot better, even with a few teething problems, than everything that preceded it. Um, so we're not really looking at this anymore. So, so there was still quite a lot of work to do, so particularly up to that, um, as you mentioned, the 2010 um, general election. Um, so there was there were still some issues there with the devolution of, of policing and judicial powers, which was which was obviously hugely important. Um, and again, you know, the, all, all all these issues um, have an element of risk. Um, just because you've got the Good Friday Agreement as as a framework doesn't mean that individually things still can't go wrong. So 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 there was a lot of management, a lot of careful management went on both under I think Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and, and a lot of very good people um, put their shoulder to the wheel um, and um, made sure that that, that that things stuck. Um, and I think probably what we've seen over over the course of the last decade or so is is the tension again starting to wane and um, some problems creeping in and and certainly over the last few years things that have gone wrong um, particularly that you look at the the, the issue with the renewable heat incentive um, debark and the three hiatus in the functioning of the executive and the assembly I mean some of that was avoidable I think, with, with a sure political touch by the by the secretaries of state at the time, and and by you know David Cameron, um, I think in particular, and David Cameron and Theresa May, um, paying perhaps more attention when they should have done. So, so again, it's it's a, it's a, you know part part of the the, the recurrent um, um, 
problem with, with, with Northern Ireland is, is, as I mentioned in my last book, um, British governments both underreacting to events and overreacting to events. Uh, we've never managed to find a satisfactory rapport um, for the last hundred years. And that, that uh, lurching from, from kind of one extreme to another is something that goes on even to the current days with, with the issues with um, the protocol. Exactly. And I suppose it's probably almost every evening one of the first topics on the news when it comes to the issues surrounding the protocol. And just as you mentioned there in terms of how back around 2001, there was almost a feeling that it was a done deal, that by and large there were some issues with the North, but uh, overall there was stability. Uh, do you think, is there a lack of an understanding as to society in the North amongst a lot of politicians in Westminster. When you look, for example, the greatest, I suppose, uh, example being Karen Bradley, thinking that unionists actually voted for nationalist parties. Do you think, is it just um, perhaps maybe because, as you mentioned there, it's 10 years since Labour were in office and you've had successive Conservative governments. But do you think, is it just a lack of understanding of the people in Northern Ireland that a lot of civil service or people who were who are in the position you were in in the past that there isn't an awareness of the sensitivities uh amongst the communities in northern ireland oh d- definitely i think there's two elements to it i think i think there's there's definitely um, there's a lack of interest um and there is a lack of understanding um in in westminster and, and you know that cuts right across the political divide um that's not that's not just you know a fault of of, of recent ministers um, you know it, it, you know you could you could make that case of many labor politicians as well that there is a lack of interest um because it's a faraway place of which we know and and perhaps care little um and of course for the first 50 years of northern ireland's existence um the goings-on in Northern Ireland um, were not um, subject to parliamentary scrutiny in the House of Commons. It was regarded as a devolved matter and therefore uh, questions were not allowed. So, so even when people knew things were bad in Belfast and Derry and, and, and knew the, the, the kind of tenor of, of the Stormont regime, those issues never made it to the floor of the British House of Commons. So, so, so there's, been a, there's been a lack of interest, a lack of regard. And I think that's, that's true in, in wider British society as well. I think unless you are from um, an Irish background or, or, or perhaps have some cognizance of these issues, um, that, that then you know it's, it's very easy to, to be completely blindsided by what goes on in Northern Ireland. I think that the view of people, you know, growing up here in, in during the Troubles was, you know, what the hell is going on? What, what there's, there's two there's two groups of people. There's the kind of, you know, and I put this, you know not disparagingly but but there's the kind of the green paddies what's their problem and then there's the orange paddies what's their problem they're all just paddies aren't they um, and i think that's the default view frankly of, of lots of british people um whose experience of irish people you know is is is, is, is utterly benign and and you know the, the, this is the same era where you would you know you would have had lots of irish voices on television and radio and the terry wogans and all kinds of people so people kind of normalize the irish experience and like irish people they just don't get and don't understand um, the context to Northern Ireland, which is of course difficult um, if you're not close to it. Um, but I think I think what was fascinating to me when you look at a lot of the opinion polling right the way through the troubles is when the British public are asked. I mean, there's kind of there's kind of two um, responses that, that that are kind of evinced. One is bring the troops home. 
um, what, what, what are we doing there? That's you know we, we want that to end. And, and also, you know, look, you know, we don't really want to stay there. But what's Northern Ireland to us? It's not a place we really go to. There's very little kind of tourism, um, and very little reason for anybody from Britain to go to Northern Ireland. Um, you know, so, so, so again, it's, as I say, it's a faraway place of which we we know little and perhaps care little. Um, so, so yes, the political the political elite um, are not particularly um, close to these issues, but neither is the British public. And I, I think that's that's the kind of two pronged um, problem, which has meant that at crucial crucial points in the last the last fifty years, you know, the, the period of the troubles and, and, and the lead up to it, particularly, um, the antennae of, of, of British politics and Westminster has been really really poor, and it didn't act when it should have acted, and then it, as I say, it overreacted when it shouldn't have overreacted. And that's very, very much the kind of the, the kind of policy response to um, to the troubles. I think, in a nutshell. Okay, so and just on, it's one of the topics you covered in your first book about how Britain just really isn't into Northern Ireland. So, within that book that you published in twenty sixteen, uh, a United Ireland: Why Unification Is Inevitable and How It Will Come About. What do you think are the main elements that make a United Ireland inevitable, in your opinion? I think, I think it's always been parked as um, unfinished business. And, and I think there's been a recognition, um, you know, th- throughout, um, you know, the last century in, in British politics that, that sooner or later somebody would um, have to deal with this in, in a full and final way, that Northern Ireland was not built to last. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a temporary expedient um, that at various points um, looked like it might have been on the way in early parts of the 20th century. Um, and I, th- I think there's, there's, there's very much that. It's a contested space, um, and it, it always has been, and it always will be. So it, in a sense, it wasn't built to last. It's never worked, and I would probably argue it never will work. There are periods when things are better than everything that's gone on in the past. The last 22 years since the Good Friday Agreement has been you know, imperfect in lots of ways. The devolved bodies have only functioned for kind of half the half the time. But it is in an instant preferable to everything that preceded it for the previous seventy odd years. Um, so, 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 so you know, it's not great, but it's still a lot lot better than, than what went before. So there's an element that this is unfinished business. Um, there's an element that um, um, the, the Good Friday Agreement obviously gives gives um, gives a, a, a guarantee of a border poll when it looks likely that there is a population tilt towards Catholic nationalism broadly um, and, and therefore therefore the British government has got a choreography to, 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 to land this issue. And I, th- I think that's what the Good Friday Agreement is about fundamentally. It's about the peaceful reunification, having a blueprint for the peaceful reunification of Ireland. But there are obviously wider, wider factors. There's demographic changes that are taking place and we'll probably see some of that reflected in the census um, uh, re- returns later in the year. There is the, the, the politics and the electoral results are obviously tilting as well. And, and we've seen you know dramatic events um, even this year with, with what's happening with the unionist vote splintering in, in all kinds of directions. So, so that those changes again. There's the economic arguments for, for Irish unity, which are, you know, compelling. And, and if you could take away all the painful history and identity politics and just say what's a rational, what's a rational way forwards, you'd come up with Irish unity in an instant. Because, um, you know, the, the, the com- complementarity between Northern Ireland and the South is, is evident. Um, we're trying to prop up 
a system that, that you know does not work desperately well politically, socially, or economically. Uh, and all the evidence suggests, of course, if Northern Ireland were to be in the same policy frameworks um, as, as as the much more dynamic Southern economy, it would benefit hugely um, by being part of that. So, as I say, you know, I don't underestimate the difficulty of the history of the politics um, and, the, and and everything, and everything there. But if you could look at this just rationally on the economics and the finance, we'd have a United Ireland tomorrow. It's a no-brainer. It's an absolute no-brainer. Everybody wins. Yeah, so you've mentioned there's been a couple of factors over recent years that are maybe, I don't know if turning the tide is the right phrase to use, but it makes Irish unity look more and more likely. But to what extent do you think has the Brexit referendum and everything that's come since, how has that impacted the, I suppose, the national question in Ireland and maybe started to convert some people who mightn't have been in favour prior to Brexit, but who are now maybe they're thinking about it? Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's it's, it's catalyzed the discussion. It's you know it's um you know as I say it's, it's an accelerant that's been poured over the, the dry tinder of all these other issues. The, the you know the, the the demographic changes, the political changes, the economic arguments, um, the fact that there is you know evident British disinterest and and you know as I say unfinished business. All those issues are there anyway. And what Brexit what Brexit represents is 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 an accelerant that, that's 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 sharpened up. Um, these issues and brought them to the fore and demanded um, some explanation about, about about the way forward. I mean, I mean, at the very least, um, Northern Ireland will lose six hundred million euro of EU funding every year. That's you know, as, as you know far better than I do, Kieran. I mean, that's that's probably three hundred million of farm payments and another three hundred million of various other social funds. That is a, that is a big chunk of change to lose. Um, there's all kinds of issues that Northern Ireland will face in terms of um, the, 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 the being on the periphery of, of the British state and, and being on the fringes of, of, of an Irish state that's much more economically dynamic and uh, an enthusiastic member of the European Union and, and a, a, a home for, for lots of um, foreign direct investment into the, into the single market. Northern Ireland, as we see even this week with the, with the raging issues around, around the protocol, is kind of in a halfway house. It's been left there. That's what that's what Boris Johnson and, and you know signed up to, and this is what unionists um, ultimately um, have delivered because of their enthusiastic support for Brexit. Um, and, and there's an argument that sort of says, look, Northern Ireland may, may even do quite well here if, if it got its act together and it took the economic advantages of being part of a UK single market and the EU single market. But it's unlikely, I think, to do that. Um, so Northern Ireland will continue to shrivel, continue to suffer direct consequences of Brexit. And, and I think for, for, in terms of the, the, the issue as, as a discussion point, I think what, what it's provided for is a supplementary question on that ballot paper when we get that border poll, which is not only would you like um, Northern Ireland to be part of a single Irish state or however however it might be phrased as a question, but th there's a kind of a hidden supplementary question on that ballot paper is do you want to rejoin the European Union? Because of course a, a united Ireland you know, the, with the North as part of a new single Irish state would automatically become part of the European Union again. And, and that I think that's important for quite a few people culturally and in terms in terms of their access to travel and to be part of a, of a bigger connection um, to Europe. I think that is important to, to lots of people um, in, in Northern Ireland, which is, of course, why a majority voted to stay in in, in June, June 2016. But, but I think what it does as well is it, it, it 
provokes a question very directly to people from the Protestant Unionist tradition, particularly people in, in rural settings, in, in farming, in agriculture. And obviously there's lots of people um, that that applies to who, who will say, look, you know, I can get guaranteed farm payments again um, if we're part of the part of the um, European Union again. And at some level, um, the question then is, is provoked. And this is the central question that governs all electoral politics, really, which is, what do I want and what can I live with? Um, there's, there's what I want to see and what, what, what I want to happen. But then I can be pragmatic too and say, look, is it the worst thing in the world if I'm part of a new 32-county island where I've got these guys falling over themselves to try and be friendly and helpful and accommodating, and I get all the guarantees that I used to have about farm payments, which I now don't have, because there is no way Northern Ireland farmers and agriculture are going to have the same pull with the British government in, in the next 12, 18 months' time that they've had with the European Union for the last 40 years. Uh, you know, we've got a British government where it's grappling with COVID, Brexit, lots of problems, lots of problems with the public finances. The idea that Northern Irish farmers are going to be kept in the status to which they've grown accustomed is, is for the birds. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Um, so I think I think these questions start to become very, very real to lots and lots of people. And as I say, this, this supplementary question about rejoining the European Union, I think, is a real plus um, in trying to uh, win over people who are not necessarily convinced because of the national question and and, and the kind of historical um, desire to be part of a single Irish state. I think there's, there's very good pragmatic reasoned, um, reasons um, to have Irish unity as well. I think, I think a lot of people will start to see that. Okay, that's excellent. So I suppose just touching on something you mentioned there a minute or two ago about how I suppose many people perhaps in the South are doing their utmost to try and ensure and show that Northern Unions, that you will be accommodated and I suppose you have nothing to fear from United Ireland and trying to make, I suppose, uh, a clear understanding as to what a United Ireland would look like. So touching on that, um, in recent times, you've had the likes of Jim O'Callaghan, Fianna Fáil TD, and Neil Richmond, Fianna Gael TD, two past uh, guests on the Shared Ireland podcast. They've released uh, white papers on the topic of Irish unity. So... Do you think are Southern politicians beginning to become more aware or finding their voice on uh, the question of Irish unity? They, they definitely. Um, I, think, I think some of them are, have been a bit slow to do so. Um, and I think that, that's because um, I think initially um, some people have misunderstood the pace at which this issue is now coming around. I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been saying for the last few years, you know, this is not some, you know, 20, 25 year project. This is something that is happening now. This is something that may catch up to people very, very quickly. We may have a scenario, for example, um, next May, where, where not only is Sinn Féin the largest party, for example, in, in the next assembly elections in the North, but but that potentially if, if, the, if the unionist vote splinters in all kinds of directions, where, where you know the Sinn Féin vote share outweighs both the DUP and the UUP put together. I mean, the, the, that, that's potential. At that point, if that were to happen, for example, then demands for a border poll become very, very real, very, very quick. And, and, and you know, this is, as I say, this is not something that, that can cannot be kicked down the road on this one. And, and Dublin has been historically, I think, as keen to do that as London has. Um, there's been a sense of, look, you know, not, yes, this is unfinished business, but, you know, I don't want to have to deal with it. The issues are too big. Pass it along to the next person. Um, and I don't think Dublin can do that anymore. I think I think politicians there are starting to realise this and starting to think, actually, this debate is growing in intensity, but not just in a, in, in a kind of 
aspirational, it would be nice if there was a United Ireland, wouldn't there? It's actually an evidence-based discussion, partly in relation to, to Brexit as, as, as the most obvious, um, as I said, most obvious current driver. But, but these issues have been bubbling up for quite some time and, and they demand a response now. And it demands a coherent uh, response from, from, from the Dublin political cognoscenti. And I think this is what we've started to see with, with the papers that, uh, that, that you mentioned from, from, from Jim and Neil, which, have, you know, which are very welcome and that's some, some really interesting points in there. And I, I suspect what will happen ultimately is what always happens in politics is, is, that, is that, as the old saying goes, that the, um, the pioneers get the arrows and the, and the settlers get the land. And, and I think what will happen is that sooner or later everybody in Dublin will have been in favour of Irish unity all along and they were always in favour of it and, 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 and what have you and we'll reach a tipping point and I think we're getting to that point and I think the composition of the next Irish government given given the state of the, the parties in the south and the, the surge for Sinn Féin which looks to be a very sustained position um, I think makes that inevitable and I think you know if you were to have a strong result in the north for Sinn Féin and a strong result in the south for Sinn Féin that then of course they're going to push this agenda very very fast and very hard so this is not something that can be pushed away for the next 10 to 15 years this is coming up in the next five years i, I think um and, and, and you know that 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 i think is now starting to um that, that you know the, the dublin political class is now starting to get that okay so do you think um it's a topic that's come up uh, quite a bit you've got ireland's future calling for it but do you see is a citizens assembly the way to go in terms of uh, I suppose, as you mentioned earlier, making sure that we don't have a Brexit scenario in Ireland where there is uncertainty as to what the result is. And do you think that the Citizens' Assembly, looking back on aspects like the repeal of the Eighth Amendment and other policy initiatives that have taken place in Ireland, do you see that as being a positive approach to bringing it forward? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm slightly maverick on, the, on, the, on these points. and I, I'm all in favour of, of referendums. and We have very few of them in, in the British um, political tradition, and, and and I think they should be. I think there should be more of them. Uh, that's not a popular view um, after Brexit, I have to say. But 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 I think I think I think there's a, there's a point where where you know they, they can be they can be they can be destructive, but they can also be hugely creative as well. And and, and I think I think Ireland's got a much more measured, much more much more responsible way of dealing with these issues. Much more deliberative way uh, with, with with involving citizens and, and and arriving at positions. So I think I think I think somewhere in the in the middle of these two quite different traditions, you can you can have something that um, that, that that works. And I think you're trying to arrive at a point where there's an informed public debate. Um, at, at the end of the day, this is obviously the, the easiest issue in the world to understand, or the hardest, depending on on, on how you want to look at it. Really, I mean, you know, the, everybody I think understands broadly what this involves, but of course. It's the implications of it that that um, you know that we could we could do with a lot more discussion about what does a single Irish economy look like? What are the institutions that are needed, the political institutions and reforms that are needed um, in in a, in a single thirty-two county, uh, single thirty-two county island? Lots of people in the north, for example, say, and, and some people in the south, when they're trying to reach out to unionists and reassure them, we'll keep storm, we should keep stormant. My view is, uh, forget it, get rid of it. It's a waste of time. You can't have a zombie parliament in Belfast, meeting for no good reason in a country of six and a half million people when you've, you've got a, a parliament in, in, in Dublin. You know, in, in a sense, let's find things that are rational rather than ceremonial. 
Um, so, so let's get rid of storms. It doesn't fit. It's it, you know it's asymmetric in in in, in, a, in a country where um, you know the population is, is is still fairly fairly modest. What would work, I think, for for all of Ireland, um, the north and the south, and some of the bigger towns and bigger um, conurbations, is perhaps um, the British model of, of um, executive metro mayors, uh, which which um, which you know we, we embarked upon in British politics about five years ago. Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester springs to mind. Andy Street in, in Greater Birmingham, and, and I, th- I think you know that that might be a model that works quite well around around a thirty-county island to actually pull out centres of political power and influence. And I think it would also then potentially give um, people from the unionist tradition in the north um, genuine political agency, things that they could stand candidates for and win and have have some real autonomy. And I think I think that for me is more important than than, than the kind of ceremonial. Um, let's keep Stormont um, c- c- kind of argument, even though I understand it's, it's made from a good place. It's people trying to reach out and say, well, if that's important to you, we'll keep it. I think that's the right, that's an absolutely the right impulse. I think it's the wrong conclusion in, in that sense. So I think, I think there's, there's lots of things that we need to discuss. We need to see how this economy works. We need to look at uh, the, the whole integration piece. Now, now my, my, one of my arguments is that actually, again, if you can just park all the identity politics, all the history and all the difficult bits, administratively creating this new single unitary um, single state is actually fairly straightforward. I mean, you know, this this is not West Germany taking on East Germany in, in 1990. I mean, Northern Ireland is 10 times fewer people than East Germany. Um, you know, it's not a big it's not a big task in terms of public administration to make these things work effectively, have shared public services, you know, create a single sort of health um, a service um, and even get the, the, you know, the economy in, in the same place as well. That's, that's the easy bit in some respects. But this is where we need to have much more detail in the discussion and actually bring in the business voice, bring in people from the trade unions and public services to talk about how that integration piece works as well and to, and to get some agreement about, about political and institutions and as I say one of my ideas is I'm a big fan of mayors generally anyway um, I think that I think that would work really really well not only for people in the north but people in Cork and for people in Galway and Waterford and places like that that are again slightly out of the out of the kind of greater Dublin um, kind of orbit so, so, so I think I think the discussion needs to move into proof of concept so we've got the issues of, of you know how this border poll will come about but then again what are we voting for? Above them, when we get below the, the, the point about it's a, it's a new single Irish state, how does it function? And I think I think that's where we need to see um, a lot more detailed discussion um, over the next while. And I think I think we'll we'll get there. Okay, that's excellent. So I suppose just on the say in the future, if there is a citizens assembly, uh, a number of unionist politicians have come out and said that they will not engage with it. Uh, what would you say to them in terms of? Um, I suppose, with the Citizens' Assembly, by not having unionist politicians, would there be anything missing? And will that have any impact on, as you mentioned earlier, uh, those members of the unionist community who might be, you know, very proud of their British heritage, but are beginning to look south, as you mentioned earlier, seeing that there are more opportunities. So what would you say to any unionists, I suppose, looking from the outside um, on the development of a Citizens' Assembly, looking towards Irish unity? I, I mean, I think... Uh, the, 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 there's the obvious 
real politique of it. That there's no point being a unionist politician if, if you then go away and start talking about um, a united Ireland. You're not much of a unionist politician if you did that. So I totally understand that the, the, the bind that the political class is in. They're not going to engage with this until it becomes an inevitability and it's happening, at which point I think they will engage with it quite quickly and meaningfully. I think there's there's a bigger hinterland of civic unionists, people from, the, from as I say, from... from uh, business and from farming as, as well that have got very rational um, um, interests that, that, that they want to um, safeguard at the very least. So to, to engage with the process of change from their perspective, I think makes a lot of sense. And I think there's lots of people in, in, in that position. There's lots of people um, that, that will look at these issues um, pretty objectively and, and engage accordingly. They'll have their say. Um, so, I, you know, in, in a sense, I think that will, in, a, in some respects, take care of itself. Um, I think there's also the, the, the um, you know, the simple fact that political unionism does not have a veto on, on, on change. I mean, that, that's, one of the, that's one of the guiding principles of, of the Good Friday Agreement is the principle of consent. Now, for 20-odd years, the principle of consent has meant there's not going to be a united Ireland because there's not a majority of people living in Northern Ireland that want to have one. Now, but the, the trouble is with the consent principle, and I think this is where unionists um, are slightly behind the curve, is that the consent principle is a weather vane. And when it blo the wind blows in a different direction, the principle of consent changes too. And, and if we have the um, consent of the majority to pursue um, a border poll and to pursue these issues, then that's what must happen. Um, whether people from the unionist tradition find that difficult or not, because the boot has been on the other foot for, for long enough, quite frankly. Um, you know, so so we, you know, we, we should not let that hold us up. And I think the more we frame the issues around rational a rational discussion around an economy that generates more and better jobs, greater levels of prosperity, a better education system that, that brings people um, forward and allows them to make more more of the opportunities in life, which hinders pretty much everybody at various stages in Northern Ireland, with I think people you know, in, in, from the unionist community in East Belfast having the lowest social mobility in Western Europe, which is you know is, is shocking, frankly, in, in, in a within within a British state as. as fifth largest economy in the world that's a terrible indictment so i think we can do a lot better and i think the more we get into the the granular discussion about how all this works and what's on offer they're, they're, then i think more people will be interested in, in in participating in that discussion so i'm not i'm not worried that there's going to be an empty chair in the room i don't think there will be i think there are a lot of people within as i say the civic unionist space that are prepared to step up and and make their arguments and 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 address um, the reality of where we are, but, but also bring with them their reasoned um, perspectives as well. And if the political representatives have to kind of sit that one out at this stage, then, you know, frankly, I would completely understand that. I think we need to be realistic about position therein. But I, I know for a fact that, you know, that, 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 that people within the UUP and the DUP are looking at these issues very carefully and are starting to game their scenarios. They're not going to say a lot of this publicly, clearly, but they are engaged in it in their own way. Okay, that's great. So I suppose moving on to your latest book, What a Bloody Awful Country, Northern Ireland's Century of Division. Can you tell me a little bit about the book? So what are the topics which are discussed in the book and also where people can get their hands on it? Uh, certainly. So, so the... the, the um... The, the title obviously comes from uh, from, from Reginald Maudling's um, famous quotation, Reginald Maudling, who um, 
uh, is one of those figures in, in British political history that, that's, again, that's probably been slightly forgotten, but was a, a very big um, player in uh, the Conservative Party and Conservative politics from the 50s to the, to the late 70s, um, and was, was sent over um, in 1970 as Home Secretary, um, with obviously the security and political situation in meltdown at that point when Edward Heath became Prime Minister and, and on his first trip came back to, to, to Belfast Airport and said to an official... Um, after a, a, a sort of hectic and frazzled day, um, for God's sake, um, um, somebody bring me a large scotch. What a bloody awful country before getting on the plane and, and, and flying out. So, so, so I, in some respects, it's... It, um, what I've tried to do is, is look at the last hundred years, the, the century of division. I mean, there's no other way of, I think, framing a discussion about Northern Ireland. We're in the centenary year, but it's a century of division. There's some appalling things that have happened. We've had... You know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a 50, 30, 20 centuries, 50 years of, of, of unionist misrule. There's no other way. There's no, there's no way of getting around this. You, look, you can read all the evidence, all the history books. You know, it was a disgraceful episode, um, the Stormont regime and the, and the abuses of the Ulster Unionist Party against the Catholic minority. We then, we, we, this then kind of, you know, this descends into the troubles for 30 years, which again, you know, there's, 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 a lot of these issues will be very familiar to people. And then we get twenty odd years of, of, of stop-start political progress. So, so this is a, this is a pretty dreadful um, period. Northern Ireland, as I say, was was built to fail, and fail it did. Um, and I think it, it, it's it's um, what I've tried to do is capture um, the essence of this thing was broken before it started. It never worked well. It still doesn't work well. Um, and, and this is this is the history that we've been um, bequeathed. Um, which has been hugely difficult, um, and, and as I say, particularly what, I, what I'm interested in is, is, is the kind of turning points and the things that should have happened that didn't happen. You know, and you look at you look, you look at a lot of this history and you just think, God, if, if if only they'd had a bit more courage at that point, that might not have happened. Or if that initiative had just been backed, then then other things might not have happened um, as, as a result of it. And, and you know, it, 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 it's it's you know, it's 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 a century that everybody. Um, across the board, should regret and have, you know, and, and have pause um, and think we could have done things so much better. And that that, that goes for everybody. That goes for all participants. Um, but I think I think there's a, there's a, there's a need, um, as I say, in British politics, because Northern Ireland is still a pedal in our shoe. It's still a, it's still a difficult issue. It's still generates lots of controversy and lots of lots of unpredictability right up until literally, um, you know. Boris Johnson's meal this evening with Joe Biden, which um, you know he's probably going to get a bit of a rollick in about, about the protocol. So, so, so this has been going on for a hundred years, and and you know we need we need to understand a lot of this a lot better. And as I say, in British politics, Northern Ireland is not well understood, um, and it, you know it needs to be because it carries on um, with this potential to cause um, you know enormous difficulties and enormous problems. So I've tried to just I've tried to capture the, the, the historical essence of. of um, you know, the, the, you know, fifty years of, of, of Stormont, and then and then how things descended from the, in the, the kind of mid to late nineteen sixties through to uh, Bloody Sunday, and then and then Sunningdale. That kind of six or seven years when things could have been so different if they'd have been handled better. Um, if Terence O'Neill had been able to bring unionism um, to a point where it made sensible concessions, if the British government of the day and, and Harold Wilson and, and Jim Callan could have forced the pace more in, in, the, in the mid-1960s, if, if you know, we'd not seen um, um, the troops go in and then become uh, 
you know, an augmented part of the Orange State, which is what happened. If we could have avoided internment without trial, if we could have avoided Bloody Sunday, if we'd have made Sunningdale work and not allowed it to be dragged down by, by uh, the Loyalist workers' strike. You know, there's these key points where you just think if there had been more courage and more certainty, um, we could have avoided so much else that, that, that went on, but that didn't happen. And, and what we kept seeing were policy failure after policy failure after policy failure until this kind of golden moment around the Good Friday Agreement where, where, where a lot of people with a lot of hard work managed to make something decent stick. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a century of this place has never worked. Um, here's hopefully some of the reasons why. Um, and, and, you know, we need to talk about it and analyse it and understand it because it causes us um, problems, enduring problems, right into the current day. That's excellent. So uh, I saw recently there was a quote from you where you said that you don't foresee Northern Ireland having too many more anniversaries. So I think someone who might disagree with that is the new leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, Doug Beattie, who's focusing his message on creating an inclusive and progressive case for retaining the union. Do you think that argument can be made when, irrespective of how Northern Ireland votes or even Scotland or Wales votes, if England wants a Conservative government, the entirety of the UK gets a Conservative government. So can that inclusive, progressive case for the Union be made? I think, I think there's two things that are interesting. I mean, I, I, did, I did hear, and, and you know, I find, I find Doug Beatty quite an interesting character. I think he's a sincere man. Um, I, I, was, I was struck by two things he said, though. One is that he wanted to bring uh, unionism into the 21st century, and, and I could, could hardly, you know, can't really let that pass without saying we're, we're nearly a quarter of the way through it, <laughs> so in your own time. Um, and, and the second was that he, he cited, we are the party of Carson and Craig. And, and, and I winced when I heard that, because, I mean, obviously the Ulster Unionist Party um, has a particular culpability um, for, for everything that's gone on in Northern Ireland, because, of course, it ran the place for 50 years. Uh, you know, those terrible five decades of, of rampant discrimination and, and you know, most appalling um, misgovernment. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's the history of his party. And to cite Carson and Craig, these hugely divisive figures for anybody that's not an, an Unionist, just struck me as a very discordant note if you're trying to, you know, make an argument that you're a new progressive liberal Liberal, uh, unionism, because at some level, the challenge for unionism today is the same that it's always been. It's got to reach out and pull over a significant chunk of the Catholic nationalist population who will who will be happy with a status quo and will not want to leave to be part of a united Ireland. That's always been the challenge, um, and and that in a sense is what Doug Beatty, I think, is trying to. Uh, Articulate, and then he goes and quotes Carson and Craig, which which was I just think you can't you know you can't ride two horses here, um, you know for me um, all political parties uh, at some level modernised themselves by repudiating their own past by recognising the failings of their predecessors and that we now live in different times and that you're going to move in a different direction recognising the failures of your, of, your, of your predecessors and unionism. Is, is what you know just doesn't like doing that. It just it just refuses to do it. It's not that it doesn't do it in its own way. It does. Um, you, you, you know you, you hear very few um, very few um, remarks about Ian Paisley, for example, in the DUP in the, in the modern DUP. You know the guy's the founder of it. It's founded in his image. He led it for nearly thirty years. But he's never mentioned really. And he was obviously dispatched in in, in fairly short order. Um, so, so, so I think the challenge the challenge for Doug Beatty is is it's very easy to say these things. 
things. But the, cha- the, the reality is that the, the challenge he's got, or the challenge that Edwin Kluter's got, which I think he's probably less interested in, 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 in taking up, is you've got to win over a lot of people for whom now a united Ireland represents not only an aspirational um, goal, but is also a rational response to the current moment, particularly, as I say, with, with, with Brexit. Um, and so, in a sense, the proof of the pudding's in the eating. I suspect what Doug Beattie will, will end up doing is splitting the unionist vote, um, and it will go in all kinds of directions with the TUV um, taking up the, the kind of real full fact um, unionist um, 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 voter, the DUP sort of still, still very competitive, and you never write off the DUP. They obviously are. Pretty, pretty good at, um, at holding on. The UUP potentially coming in and pulling across some of those perhaps pro-European, more liberal um, unionist voters. And, and the, the net result being that it, that vote splits three ways. That may be um, you know, his contribution. It may not be one that in the fullness of time that they, they, they particularly value. Okay, so I suppose just as you mentioned there, it looks like unionism is becoming increasingly fragmented. So what do you think is the argument, say when the time comes when there is a border poll, what is the argument that unionists can make to people who are on the fence or undecided to try and convince them to stay in a union where they've got very little influence at the national UK level? Uh, in all honesty, I think, I think it's too late. I think it's too late. I think if you can't give ground on issues like an Irish Language Act, which is neither here nor there, frankly, in the, in the grand scheme. Because if you can't give ground on something like that to the other side, then, then there's no hope, really. You, you know, you, you're, you're not prepared to offer anything at that point. And I think that that's unionism's big strategic failing. And it, as I say, it remains its challenge. How do, how do you reach the hand across and do something meaningful? Um, you know, we're still waiting. Um, and I think... I think we're now in a we're now in a place where, where as I say, we've we've moved way beyond um, you know the aspirational about, about, about Irish unity. We've we've moved into you know much more detailed, granular level discussions. You know when, when you've got um, publications like the Sunday Times and the Financial Times and the Economist openly talking about the likelihood of, of Irish unity at some stage in the in, in the next few years. We're in a completely different zone. What is the argument for the status quo? That's the, that's the challenge for, for Edwin Poots and for Doug Beattie. What is the argument for the status quo? Because there isn't really one. There's not a desperately good one. Um, and, and within that, you've got to have an offer, a new offer, a bigger offer, a more generous offer to, to keep um, a chunk of Catholic nationalism um, within, within the status quo. And, and you know, I, where is that offer coming from? Because I, I, I see no evidence of it whatsoever and I, I think now is the time to make it and now is the time to do it in a very genuine way there's no point waiting another couple of years when we're further down the road to, to a border pole and then, and then and then trying to manufacture something it will just look tactical it will look cynical and it won't work you know in a sense Doug Beatty's got a unique opportunity and I, I look to him because I think we can discount Edwin Poots's modernizing credentials I think he's there to, to lick the DUP's wounds but but a lot rests I think on Doug to be able to say if you're genuine, if you're sincere, if you want to, to take the UUP to a new place, then, then you know this all rests on you. Um, and you know, as I say, you know the the, the jury's out, and, and I wouldn't expect anything dramatic to come back. Okay, so I suppose 
when you think about the future of the union it's not only within ireland there's questions but of course what is happening with scotland and it could be another one of those factors we talked about earlier that could be a critical shift so do you see there being a second independence referendum in scotland in the near future and how do you see that playing out and how that could even impact how members of the unionist community in the north view the uh, future of ireland I think there's a very, I'm always struck, there's a very curious phenomenon in, in British political journalism, which is which is people um, from the political right um, who who write pieces in, in some of the magazines and newspapers saying, you know, we've got to save the union, must save the union, da 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 da. And then when you actually read into the piece, what they mean is Scotland. <laughs> they don't mean Northern Ireland at all. Um, Northern Ireland is priced in that it's going. I think I think that's that's you know that's that's one element of it. And as I say, the other element is is a general disinterest and, and misunderstanding anyway. But I think I think Northern Ireland's kind of priced in that there's a there's a whole separate um, process in the Good Friday Agreement that, that takes care of that. And also when people talk about saving the union, they explicitly mean Scotland. Um, and and you know we, we we're seven years on from. Um, the um, the first referendum in, in 2014, and it's one of those dramatic events, the, the first referendum in Scotland that people have forgotten about, um, where, where you ended up with the entire British political class, business class, uh, media class, um, celebrities, the whole shebang wrapped around the, the better, better, better together um, uh, campaign, and the argument being. Please don't go. David Beckham says, please don't go. Stuart Rose from Marks and Spencer says, please don't go. David Cameron says, please don't go. Ed Miliband says, please. And everybody says, please, please don't go. We're, we're better together. And, and the more they went down that road of pushing this line, um, the more um, Scottish voters started to back independence. And I think what would have what would have been curious is if that campaign had lasted another fortnight, uh, we could have well seen it tip over 50% in 2014. Um, and it, it, it stopped at 45% uh, to 55%. So, so it was it was getting very, very close. So I think the, the Scottish independence argument stands at a very high watermark to begin with. And we've seen lots and lots of polls over the last year or so where it's been tipping over 50% up to nearly 60 in some polls. So I think the demand is there. I think I think the, the, the issue is now framed in a very different way because, of course, nobody had heard of Brexit in 2014. Um, 63% of Scots wanted to stay in the European Union and have been kind of pulled out by English voters as, as they see it. So, so, so there's, again, a, a new catalyst for having a referendum because, again, Scotland is, is you know, the rest of the European Union looks a lot more like Scotland than it does like the UK. You know, small, proud countries, historical countries, significant countries, dynamic, small countries. You now, that's Scotland to a T. So Scotland will do very well. Um, and independent Scotland in a European Union, it fits. Um, so I think it's got a renewed argument um, in the post-Brexit world. I think everything that seems to go on at Westminster only seems to antagonise and accentuate um, um, this, this, this sense of separateness. Um, every time, every time there's an initiative to, to, to kind of um, to kind of schmooze the Scots to, to get them to to kind of come back into the fold, it just seems to drive more and more of them away. Um, the Scottish Labour Party is stone cold dead i mean i mean it's just you know this used to be labor scotland um and you know the labor party was 40 um, parliamentary seats in in uh, in 2015 and they've not come back um so, so i think i think scotland's in a very different place and i think i think if scotland were to go i think that's a very realistic scenario if scotland were to go 
then the purpose of Northern Ireland remaining in the UK just seems seems like an afterthought, really. Um, given given obviously there's so much connection between between um, Scotland and Northern Ireland culturally, anyway. Um, so, so, so so I think I think. It, it, the difficulty now for, 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 for Westminster is you've got one constitutional fight that's now started because there's a majority of uh, members of the Scottish Parliament that back um, independence between the SNP and the Greens. There's a clear majority for that. You may end up with a scenario next May in the Northern Ireland Assembly elections where, again, it may be that Sinn Féin tops the poll. It may be that there's, 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 you know, the, the, the um, unionism is in the clear minority um, in, in, terms of, in terms of the results there, that may start a second constitutional fire. And then, and then you've got a government in Westminster which is grappling with difficult public finances, midterm blues and all the rest of it. And it's got these two huge constitutional fires that are burning. And, and what does it do at that point? So, 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 so I think, I think, I think we, we are likely to see... Um, an independent Scotland. I, I mean, I have to say, you know, as, as, as I'm not Scottish, I don't have a dog in the fight in that respect. But the, the issues around um, um, Irish unity are, I think, a lot more clear cut and a lot more advanced and a lot more rational than perhaps they are uh, with Scotland. It will be quite difficult with some of the issues um, in, in terms of a divorce arrangement between England and Scotland. But, but the people advocating, again, for the status quo, um, in Westminster, have not made any of this stack up. They've not made any kind of cut through. All the energy, all the kind of brio, is with advocates of independence. And it may be that actually, you know, it's a bit of a mirror um, to what we've seen with um, with Brexit. That actually there is something genuinely invigorating about being at the birth of a nation, and that's very much how Brexiteers. Um, see Brexit, and, and and in a sense, you can't then blame the Scots if they if they frame their desires in the same way. That it's invigorating to be at the birth of a nation, and it and it transcends some of these you know these small pocketbook arguments. And nobody cares what David Beckham thinks or Stuart Rose thinks. You know that's not going to be an issue that's going to pull people back. And I, th I think I think it just strikes me that the tactics Boris Johnson set up this union unit in in, in Downing Street, and and there are various people trying trying you know. Try, you know, trying to sort of make arguments that, that might cut through, and it just seems, you know, sort of laughably um, um, unrealistic, um, given given where where things are. So, so I think this is this is one of those strap in and, and, and watch um, watch what happens over the next two to three years on, on both fronts. Okay, well, I suppose the future is definitely very interesting when you contrast, as you mentioned, it's been seven years since the Scottish independence referendum and. Many, many things have changed since then, but I suppose maybe just going back to, I suppose, your own personal life and your political life in terms of the Labour Party. So you mentioned Labour Scotland, how it was so strong, but you look, it's completely demoralised in Scotland nowadays. You look at the by-election Hartlepool and the result there for the Labour Party. Do you see any way back for the Labour Party into power in Westminster, or is it a case that... Um, some make the point that Boris Johnson is Scottish independence greatest recruitment uh, sergeant. So do you see any way back for Labour that they can challenge and almost to some extent like Doug Beattie make an alternative argument for the union? I think I think I think there's there's um, I think the British Westminster model um, tends to get stretched up a lot. And then, then often snaps back into familiar shape. Actually, so I, th I think, I think, I think there's there's, there's always hope springs eternal. Um, and then, of course, because of the first past the post system, um, it's very hard to get new entrants in, into into British politics to have any any real 
success. Um, you know, you can have a UKIP, for example, that can get a quarter of the votes in a European parliamentary election and do very well. But that does not translate through to, to a Westminster election, which is 650 mini elections across the country. It's very hard to, to localise that level of support and, and, and win seats. So, 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 you know, at some level, the pendulum swings between the Conservative and Labour parties. Um, it's been 11 years now since, since uh, Labour was in, in office, which is it's lost four general elections on the trot. But, but actually, you know, the period in the, in, the, in the 80s and 90s where it was out of power for 18 years and lost four elections, but they were full five-year terms. Um, was 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 probably more significant. So, so I think I think there's a there's a, there's a point where, um, as a government's uh, credibility and electability diminish, um, the other the other side benefits almost by osmosis. So, so I think I think that will that will stay. Labour will be back at some stage. Um, I think there's, there's there's a sense of um, it's got a, a particular take on on, on the union, which is. Uh, I think that um, I, you know, historically the Labour Party has been warmer to to, to um, aspirations of, of Irish um, Irish unity because obviously it's got a very large contingent of, of people in Britain from Irish heritage that vote Labour. Um, that was very very true in Scotland, um, but but what's happened in Scotland? The reason. That the, the, the SNP has surged and independence has surged and Labour's fallen back is that the classic Labour voter in Scotland, the kind of people from an Irish Catholic um, heritage and you know your, your average Celtic supporting um, um, sort of sort of west of coast Scot, has lifted and shifted. These are these were these were the strongest, staunchest Labour support, supporters, and they they're the ones backing independence in unprecedented numbers. So that's had a dual effect of of fueling independence but actually diminishing Labour, and as I say that happened in 2015 and it's carried on pretty much ever since and I don't see that changing um, anytime soon um, so, so I think I think I think Labour needs some Scottish votes to get back in the game um, as a party of government because you can't lose 40 seats and, and just take that loss easily you know Labour relied on Scotland you know, so much of the Labour Party's DNA is, is, is Scottish anyway first five leaders were Scottish um, so, so, so so you know there's, there's, a, there's a special connection there but but I think I think there's there's um, the, the boot is on the other foot at the moment this is this is all about the the Conservative Party for the next few years. I think that, that that's fair to say. So whether these issues um, come to the boil on Boris Johnson's watch or Boris Johnson's successor, it may be one of the great one of those ironies of you know Nixon going to China that, that actually it's a British Conservative Party that presides over the disintegration of the United Kingdom as we currently know it, um, and that would be slightly ironical. But of course, you know it's you know a lot of the key moments, particularly in Northern Ireland, uh, you know it's been the Conservative. Conservatives that came in, Maudling again, who came across in '72 to shut Stormont down. Thatcher signed the, the Anglo-Irish Agreement, uh, made a lot of the pre you know, the preemptive work on, on on the Good Friday Agreement. Chris Patton, the former Conservative Party chairman, was brought in to close the IUC down and replace it with the PSNI. Um, you know, and it's Boris Johnson that, that signed the protocol, um, which which you know, if you take the unionist argument as as um, Put a, you know, put a border in the Irish Sea and, and created an economic United Ireland, which may be a prelude to Irish unity. So, so, so it, you know, it may be the, it's the Conservative Party on whose watch um, the UK, as we as we know it, ends. Okay. Well, I suppose just on that, you mentioned how uh, Boris Johnson, among other political figures like Leo Varadkar and uh, key figures in the European Union, have been viewed as the figures who have caused this division between 
Northern Ireland and the rest of Britain. Um, do you think that to some extent that mirrors an argument uh, made by nationalists that no part of Ireland should be governed by decisions made in Westminster and to some extent that might even uh, lead to more people looking towards Irish unity as the best future for people in Northern Ireland? I mean, definitely. As I say, I think I think we're we're in a, we're in a point where um, you know I think we call it in chess when when um, when when you, your your side of the ball is in, in kind of terminal decline. You're not at checkmate, but every move you make weakens your position. I think they call it zugzwang, and I think that's pretty much um, where, where uh, unionists or advocates of this constitutional status quo find themselves. They're in zugzwang. That every every move they make, their position just gets weaker, and and it may take a period of time uh, before they're in checkmate and the game is over. Um, but but you know uh, there's an inevitability about it. And I use the, obviously that term in the title of my um, my other book about Irish unity being inevitable because I genuinely think it is. Um, I think this is this is just this is just you know unfinished business. Um, it will always be unfinished business, um, and, and the fundamentals of, of, of Irish unity and, and British disinterest um, are never going to change. Um, so, in a, in a sense, we, are, we, we will just keep drifting towards this point until, until we grab hold of it properly and, and do something constructive with it. And I think there's more people now looking to do that. I think there's more people in the debate. There's more people engaged in this than there ever has been before. Um, and, and as I say, when when, you, when when this issue makes a front, front cover of the Economist, um, you know, you know something has um, something pretty fundamental has changed. That's great. So I suppose really one final question, going back to uh, your past role as a special advisor for the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So let's uh, imagine that you're in that position now uh, working with Brandon Lewis. What would you say to him in terms of creating a criteria for the calling of a border poll? It's one of the areas of ambiguity within the Good Friday Agreement and people like Professor Colin Harvey have been trying to get an answer from him to no avail. So if you were in that position, what would you say is the threshold that once that is reached, it's time for a border poll? I think I think there's I think it's, it's a, I mean, it's a very good point. It's a very it's a, it's a it's a huge issue, and I don't think there was any um, attempt to deceive um, back in 1998, where, where it's been it's been kept slightly elliptical. I think it more more generally reflected um, we're nowhere near that point. So so in a sense, there's no point being prescriptive in 1998 for something that might take 20 years um, to crystallise. But here we are, 22 years later, and it's now a real issue. Um, I, I think I think if, you, if, if you're invi- advising Brandon Lewis, it's a remote possibility, given, given my my past but if I was I'd be saying look actually you know you can be you can be one of the historical pivot figures here uh, we've had 22 secretaries of state for Northern Ireland not many of them have made much of a contribution in the grand scheme of things but here's an opportunity to say you know I, I can land this in a meaningful way rather than wait for uh, you know a kind of um, events to overtake me again it's the British underreaction and overreaction let's actually start to shape this out there's already been work done by academics and, and former um, Northern Ireland office officials I've seen you know seen stuff the the, the um, Institute for Government um, a British think tank that looks at Whitehall and the practical governing of, of the country um, has looked at some of these issues and I think I think some of them are fairly obvious I think you can look at um, you can look at the electoral results, uh, and of, of course next May's are going to be crucial. You can look at the body of opinion polling evidence, which again tends to suggest 
um, you know, the strong support particularly skewed towards younger voters as well. So again, it becomes a, a demographic issue. Um, so, so I think there are, there are key criteria there that if, if, if there was, um, you know, a, a tilt in, in, the, in, the, in the electoral arithmetic in the assembly, and if the assembly were to vote, for example, for, um, you know, to, 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 to call a border poll at some stage, I think that would have to carry enormous sway. Um, so, and, and I think the, da the danger is that there, are, there will be siren voices, um, some of them from Dublin, I might add, that will say, look, actually, look, there's, there's going to be a huge body of people in the Protestant Unionist background who don't like this, therefore we shouldn't, we shouldn't move forward. That doesn't stack up. That's against the letter and the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement. You know, we're, we're talking here of uh, um, everybody that wants to see constitutional change, wants to see the biggest majority possible. But the reality of referendums is, is that, is that we, as we've seen with Brexit, with 52% of the British public uh, deciding that we should leave the European Union, that's enough. Now, now my, my view, as I say, as a fan of referendums, is, is you know, and, and as a, as a pro-European, I'm not... not bowled over by, by the Brexit result. But I've said from day one, it has to stand. The public were given the, the clear choice. They made a clear choice. Um, it's it's narrow-ish, but it's also pretty definitive. It should stand. That, that's the end of it. In, in a sense, I think anybody now trying to retrofit um, a, a kind of threshold criteria to, to a, a Northern Ireland border poll, look, you know, it, it can't pass unless... 65% want it to happen, is that there is a clear legal precedent, um, again, that, that pesky issue of Brexit, um, that means that actually a simple numerical majority must, 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 um, you know, must um, be honoured and must be respected. So I think, I, think, I think that's the difficult bind that Brandon Lewis or perhaps his successor will, will find themselves in, that um, there's no retrofitting despite um, various people in one way or another trying to call for this. Um, there are pretty obvious criteria that are, that are there and, and people are talking about already, um, which, which you know, are coming up pretty fast. And my advice to him would be um, getting get in front of events rather than run to catch up afterwards. Get in front of events and start to spell out in some detail, even potentially with a green paper, um, just, just to float out what some key criteria might be um, and get some discussion going on that. Do that earlier rather than wait potentially um, from, from next May and, and have to deal with the arithmetic at that stage where there may be demands for a border poll at that point. Um, so, so, you know, learn from the history of your, your predecessors, many of whom, as I say, have achieved very little in the role and actually get in front of events for once. That would be my advice. Okay, well... I guess all we can do is wait and see what uh, Brandon Lewis comes to, or as you mentioned, one of his successors. But if Scotland leaves the union, you can only imagine that this uh, the process will be quickened up to a great extent. So uh, I think on that note, we'll wrap up our conversation here this evening, Kevin. So it has been a pleasure to hear your thoughts on what the future holds for Ireland and for our nearest neighbours as well. So as a final reminder, Kevin, can you uh, tell the listeners where they can find your book? I'm sure they'll be eager to hear about it. Delighted to. It's available as the, as the as the as the eponymous phrase goes in all good book all good bookshops. But it's, it's online pretty much everywhere. Amazon have got it. Waterstones, Foils, uh, W H Smith. So it's uh, it's it should be it should be pretty easy to get hold of. Okay. Well, I know I speak for a lot of people when I look forward to get my. Uh 
getting into it and reading it. So thank you, Kevin, for taking the time this evening. It's been great to hear from you. And thanks once again to all of our listeners for your support of the Shared Ireland platform. And as always, a like or a retweet would be greatly appreciated. Mila Buikas, many thanks and good evening.